Uh, I'm going to have Ron Carruthers come up. Come on up, Ron. He's going to share with you something that took place at the service that's very special uh, with one of the young men from Teen Challenge. We need to be careful because we're on live stream, so we probably shouldn't mention the name or anything, but uh, share, brother. Yeah, thank you, Pastor. Um, can't think of a more fitting way to kind of cap the missions week and what we experienced here. And I'll tell you, we are so blessed to be into ministries that are already so established and they're founded and they're operating. And so anyway, I'd, I'd like to share just a little bit about one more uh, ministry that we support, and that's Teen Challenge. And uh, man, I had something special happen on Sunday and it just... There's, there's every now and then you get these little nuggets that just fall and you're like, Lord, you are working and your spirit is working and you are transforming lives. At the end of our service, uh, some of the teens come up for prayer and uh, usually they're pretty anxious about having to see their parents and things of that nature and those are the sorts of things they share with us. But this little 12-year-old boy came up and... Uh, I said, son, what is it you would, you would want, you know, us to pray for? And he said, I just want to pray for forgiveness. And I said, son, you know, this is something that you're going to have to pray and we're going to have to agree with you. And I asked him, I said, have you ever prayed like this? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, can, I have. And I said, all right, well, you're just going to pray to the Father and you're just going to ask him for forgiveness. And... This 12-year-old boy, it was so precious, just started praying for forgiveness. And, and then at the end, I said, you know, son, there's just power and agreement here, and we're just going to agree with you in your prayer. And I was just amazed, and I was just thinking back, 12 years old, and he's here, and the Holy Spirit is working already in his life like that just trying to get it right with the Father. and It just was just amazing. I, it's just one of those little nuggets that Teen yes. Challenge is a great, great outreach that we're involved with. And uh, tomorrow there's a graduation, and I'll tell you, if it's at 1.30. If you've never been to a Teen Challenge graduation, I'll tell you, it's like the best Hallmark movie you could ever watch. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Amen. And there's you'll cry for an hour and a half. So... <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Ron. All right, that's wonderful. We, uh, just to share with you, you know, the Thursday night crowd, you guys get uh, a little more than I share on Sunday because you're here. This is the, this is the faithful remnant. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I'll share this weekend as well, but, you know, the last couple of weeks, God has really been moving, and uh, a, a couple of weeks back, we had a gentleman, a member of our church who came forward, uh, he's bent over, he cannot uh, really move well at all, and really struggles, and he came forward, received prayer at the prompting of another member, and... Uh, the next day, he and his wife were working together, and he said, I think I'm going to go home. I'm not feeling all that well. And he went home, and she was concerned. So after a little while, she called him and said, how are you doing? 
He said, I'm doing okay. She says, well, what are you doing? Because he can't move around and can't do anything. And he says, well, I'm in the kitchen cleaning. And she laughed. Now, most wives would laugh because the husband's cleaning. But in this case, it's because he can't do anything, much less go in the kitchen and clean. And she thought he was joking. And when she got home, the kitchen was spotless. And uh, he said, I don't feel any pain anymore. And then I, this past Sunday, his daughter came up to me. And she said, Pastor, my, my dad was out mowing the yard this week. I mean, it, it's a healing. God has healed this man. And I just think, I praise God for that. I praise God for that. And I, I hope that they can maybe share uh, this testimony uh, coming up pretty soon. The other thing that happened was on Monday night, the final night of our missions weekend, and I came in early and was sitting over here talking with uh, a family and uh, another couple that have recently come alongside the church, have joined with us, and he came up and he said, Pastor, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And he said, well, my brother's here with me tonight, and uh, he uh, has a terminal illness, and uh, he's lived his life as an atheist, m much of his life as an atheist. And uh, he said, but he asked me, uh, how do you become a Christian? And he says, so I brought him tonight thinking maybe through the service something would happen and the Lord would move. And, and I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, but let's not wait for the service. I said, have him come over here. So we sat over in the corner, and that man received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Um, you know, atheism only takes you so far. And, and, and you come to the reality, I believe, at least the Lord desires that we come to the reality to see that in the end, he's the only thing we have. And he's the only thing, only thing that matters. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you're going to die, you're going to live. Amen? Amen. <laughs> you're never going to die. Praise God. So this has been a wonderful week, a couple weeks, and I, I believe the Lord's continuing to move in the life of our church. Uh, our, my prayer is that everything we received this past weekend, we will internalize. It will not just be that we look back and go, oh, what a great weekend. Oh, those were great speakers. But, but we internalize what the Lord put in their mouth for us to hear. And we, it, it just emboldens us to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. That's what Missions Weekend is about. It's about raising the bar in our hearts and in our minds of the Great Commission. And that first, that begins with you and I right here. Amen? And, and, and thank God that we're able to support these ministries that are doing incredible things around the globe. I had a chance to spend a couple meals with uh, uh, Kurt Dillinger uh, of Life International. Wow, what a great man of God. Just really enjoyed my time with Kurt, and uh, we're going to have him come back at some point, maybe do something on prayer, because that's really in his heart. And then Mike Williams, who spoke Monday night. I'd love to see us, maybe through the men's and women's ministry, uh, have a, uh, let them sponsor the event, but have a big, a big dinner, a fun dinner, and let, let him come back. And he said, Greg, I'd, I'd be willing to come back and just have a comedy night, Christian comedy night, and just have a lot of fun and let your folks hoot and holler for a while. I said, they'd love that. So <laughs> it's wonderful how the Lord brings us into relationships where we can, we can move forward together. These are folks we're going to spend eternity with. So why not enjoy them while they're here on earth? Amen? All right, well, take your Bibles out. 
Tonight we continue in our study in 1 Samuel, the study of the kings, and we now tonight uh, finally move uh, towards the second king of Israel, and actually the third king of Israel because the first king of Israel was God, and, and of course Israel rejected the real king, so God gave them a king after their heart, and of course that didn't work out. We've, learned, we've studied up through chapter 15 about Saul. And now for chapter 16, 1 Samuel, we, we look at uh, the beginnings of, of, of David, his calling by God, his anointing. Let's begin with prayer. Father, tonight as we study the Word, oh Lord, what a wonderful time uh, of study uh, that I had just sitting with the Word and just letting it pour over me. I pray the same for people tonight, that the Word would pour over them that we would truly be ministered to, that we would come into greater understanding of who you are and your character and your nature, and that we would, it would just add confidence to our life. Uh, not not, not self-confidence, but God-confidence, that you are truly sovereign and you uh, oversee the affairs of men. And, and Lord, I thank you that you have a plan, you have a a, a will, and through those that you raise up, your will is, is carried out. And we just give you praise that tonight we can be part of the, your family and that you have a calling for each of us. You have a will for each of us. And so tonight may we be encouraged in that. May we find strength in that calling. And may we walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, this of course, we know that uh, King Saul has now been told on two different occasions by Samuel, you will not be God's man. God has actually lifted that from you, that anointing, and he's already chosen somebody else, and who he has chosen is your neighbor. He's somebody that's just down the street, and, uh, but you're no longer the guy. And of course, we know that Saul reigned for 40 years. Uh, so God allowed him to continue to sit on the throne even though he wasn't God's choice and he was told that not only would you eventually be taken off the throne, but never will there be a member of your family who will replace you. That's the, that's the idea behind monarchy is that it stays within the family. And God specifically told him, your family will not, uh, will not serve and reign over Israel. Now, there is a time... To mourn, And I want you to look at verse 1 with me. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And so God's like, Okay, you, Samuel, you've got you to get with the program here. You're still grieving over a man who I have removed. And uh, God says, Fill your horn with oil and go. So what God's saying here is there's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to move. And you say, well, how do you know when that time is? All I can tell you, I wish I could give you some quick, easy answer, write it on the whiteboard, you know, and you guys go out of here and, okay, now I'm all set. You don't know. And it's different for everyone. But I guess if we had to quantify it, we would say that you'll know it's time to move forward when God moves forward. What happens a lot of times is we mourn, and by the way, Samuel's not mourning because Saul was a great king and he has passed away and boy, you know, we're going to miss him. 
He's mourning the fact that Saul was so rebellious against God and that this could have turned out much differently. So he's mourning that there's a man who sat on the throne who did not remain faithful to God. But when you are going through a season of mourning, for whatever reason, uh, we should all go through mourning. Mourning is part of life. Uh, weeping endures for a night, the scripture says, but joy comes in the morning. It doesn't, don't take that literally, that's figurative. There's a season to mourn, there's a season to move forward. What you want to do is make sure that as you're mourning, that you're bringing that mourning before the Lord. And, and then as God begins to move you out of mourning, you know it's time to go. You don't stay behind when God's trying to go somewhere with you. And, and I've seen people do that, and they miss out on the blessings of the Lord uh, because they, they continually mourn. They just can't let go. And they'll go years and, and miss out on great ministry opportunities that God has presented to them. So I think it's very important that we try to stay in tune with God in our mourning. There's a season for it, and God wants to be in it with us, and God will strengthen us and help us and comfort us and support us. Uh, that's all part of mourning, is to have that relationship with God where He is intimate in His care for us. But then when the Lord starts to move, you know it, but sometimes we don't want to move forward. We're still grieving, and I think that's when we need to ask the Lord to help us and strengthen us to move forward. And this is what's going on. Samuel's still lingering, and God's like, no, it's over. It's a tragic rebellion. I understand that you're, you're hung up on that, but there are no surprises with me. God's not hanging up because he knew Saul would end up the way he did. God has foreknowledge. So God simply tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. So Samuel knew what that meant. To fill the horn with oil means that somebody's going to get anointed. And the anointing is going to be for the next king of Israel. And the, what, the reason Samuel knows that is because he's the one that delivered that news to Saul that his kingdom's going to come to an end and God's already chosen somebody else. So fill your horn with oil and let's go. God's doing a new thing. Filling the horn with oil meant that. That's, there's a new king to anoint. Now, God will never, I love this, God will never allow his work to die with man or to fail because of man. If it's, if it's truly God's work, one man fails or one man dies, God just brings another in. His work supersedes man. The work of God is not contingent upon the charismatic gifting of man. And if you see some great work of what you thought was a work of God because this great leader of this organization or this church dies, and then the whole thing crumbles, you'll know that it was dead while it lived. Because when God's work is being done, even if it was a great man when he passes, God's work doesn't end like that. And I can, give you, I can give you proof of it. It's when Moses leads the children of Israel for 40 years to the promised land, and then God tells him, you're not going in. And because I gave you a type of Christ, I, I allowed you to hold up the staff for the people and to... to to speak to the rock, not strike it the second time, but you struck the rock. You of who I am and who Christ would be one day. Therefore, you're not going into the promised land with the people. And so Joshua chapter 1 says, God spoke to Joshua and said, Moses, my servant, 
is dead. Now, let's go. Now, does that mean that God didn't think much of Moses? Man, he loved Moses. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was the friend of God. But God supersedes man. And his will is not about man. His will is about him. And so when one man passes, another comes up. That's the way God works. Isn't that marvelous that your God is not hung up when things go south in whatever area of your life or, or in the world, things are going in the wrong direction? Don't worry about it. God's in control. God's got everything covered. I love that about our God. Now, um, verse 1, the latter part of the verse, this is very interesting to me. The Lord said, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his, his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Samuel now, having heard the word of the Lord, knowing this is God's will and that he is to obey God, yet there's something in Samuel he's fearing for his own life. His flesh gets in there just a little bit. If I go and anoint a new king and Saul catches word of it, I'm dead. Now, that should give you just a little insight into the heart of Saul. That's how far Saul has fallen, has drifted away from God, that he would take out the Lord's anointed, God's, God's prophet, if he thought that he was threatening his throne. But, but so Samuel's concerned about that. And... Uh, and, and the Lord handles that with him. Samuel's concerned, but God's like, look, don't worry about that. I've got this thing covered, and I'm, I'm going to cover you. So that's why, but, but you know, hey, look, the re, there's a sequel to this story that we're reading about in 1 Samuel 16. You know what it is? Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. He is the legitimate ruler of this earth. He has the full right rights to you and I, those who believe, right? But Satan is the prince of this world, and he doesn't like to give up anybody. And so even though we get saved through Christ, Satan still comes at us trying to trip us up, trying to ensnare us, Hebrews tells us. He's trying to keep us from the victory that we have through Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Over the penalty and the, and the power of sin. Through Christ we have overcome. Amen? It's not future tense. It's already happened. Past tense. We're overcomers through Jesus Christ. And Satan still comes after us. That's just like Saul. Here Samuel's just doing the work of the Lord to raise up David, the new king. This is the rightful heir to the throne, David. But you think Saul's going to let that happen without a fight? Do you think Satan's going to let up just because now you belong to God? Uh, he just puts a crosshair on you, that's all. That's what that means. He's going to come after you. It's like one old preacher said, I know that I'm over the target when I'm getting flack. I'm flying over the target when I'm drawing flack. And how many of you would say that in your life, as you walk with God, as you obey God, as you trust God through life, you can feel the flack of Satan? Amen? 
You know what it feels like to, to, for spiritual warfare to happen in your life. Why? Because you, you belong to God. You're God's kid. And so Satan doesn't care about that. He's just going to come at you. That's why it's so important that when we pray for lost people, that we pray that God would open their eyes to the lies of Satan and that they would see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if they can come into the truth, they can be victorious too. They can now have life in Christ. That doesn't mean Satan will stop bothering them, but now they're saved eternally. Amen? So, so we should pray that way for our friends. Don't just say, Lord, you know, I pray that they'll just believe one day. Uh, Lord, open their eyes. Let them see. I, I was on Facebook. I've had a dialogue with somebody that I've known for years. And... Uh, She's gotten caught up in the Hebrew Roots Movement, which is, oh my goodness. You talk about the enemy's work. Uh, take a little bit of truth and mix it with a lot of junk, a lot of flesh, a lot of human tradition, and calling people back into uh, Torah, living out the Torah, as if the Torah transcends the New Testament. God help us. I mean, the Bible says the opposite, but they can't see it. Why? Their eyes are closed. They're blinded. So that's been my prayer the last week as I've had these dialogue, this dialogue with her. Lord, open her eyes that she will see the truth. The enemy has ensnared her here. He's, he's blinded her from seeing it. But our Father can open the eyes of anybody. Amen? And so that's, that's got to be our heart cry for folks. Prayer is the key, folks. As a church, who do we think we are if we think we can achieve anything apart from prayer? We need Jesus in everything that we do as a church. There is nothing that we do apart from Christ. If we do, it's a failure. I've said it so many times, I'll always say it. If you see something beautiful, edifying, glorifying happening in the life of Euro Bible Fellowship, God gets all the glory, not some of it. All of it. And if you see a mess, you see a, a mix-up, you see us fail at something, we flopped on that thing, that's man. It's not the Lord. And every church uh, should see it that way, that with God, all things are possible. Without God... Jesus said, you can't do anything, John chapter 15. So anyway, Satan is stubborn. He only yields when he must. So therefore, we need to be people of prayer, have to be specific in our prayers. We counterattack him, and we drive him out of the territory of our lives. We don't, not because we have authority over him, that we um, command him. Uh, we are already saved. I don't, need to com I don't have to command anybody. I belong to God. My God's already taken care of it. But I do, in the name of Jesus, come against His work. And I believe that God is able to do His work in spite of Satan's work. Amen? God's, God's more powerful. So we need to get a hold of prayer in our lives. In real warfare, Ephesians 6.12 still works. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're up against. The only way to win that battle is through prayer. Prayer. Trusting in God. Prayer changes me. 
after I've prayed through spiritual warfare, I'm telling you, I am absolutely confident that God's got this thing covered. That's what prayer does for me. It gives me a God confidence. If I don't pray, then I find myself trying to build up a self-confidence. Like I've gone to a Tony Robbins workshop or something. I don't know. That stuff's not going to work. You don't need... You don't need a coach. You don't need a life coach. You've got the Bible. You've got the Holy Spirit living in you. The Bible calls it disciples. We're called to be disciples. That means we are to encourage one another. That's what you need is real relationship. When spiritual warfare comes, it's the friendships that you know, people who love God and who believe in prayer. That's how you overcome. God's given you everything you need to get through. But uh, there is a tremendous battle that is going on between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. Uh, but, the, but the victory's already been decided. Don't ever, don't ever question that. The victory's already won. So Satan, like Saul, seeks to hold on to that which is no longer rightfully his. But when, he, when you come against him in the authority of the name of Jesus, see, I don't have authority, but Christ does, then he has to yield because he was defeated by Christ. He hates being reminded of that. I told you one time, when I was a younger man and I would come into sexual temptation, I, not because I'm out looking for it, but good grief, drive down the street and see some lady walking down the street with some spaghetti strap and half of herself hanging out. You see it and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't need to see that. And it's the second look that gets you, right? But as soon as I would see it the first time where the enemy would try to plant that seed in my mind for lust, I got to a place, I said, okay, every time he does that, he tries to plant a seed for lust, I'm going to turn that into a time to pray for a lost friend. And so uh, I see something, turn away, Lord, I'm lifting up Keith to you right now. I pray that, Lord, today you would open Keith's eyes to see the truth of your gospel. So Satan probably got tired of tempting me because it just led me to pray more. That's a good thing. Amen? Well, try that. It might work for you. Verse 2, and the Lord said, take a heifer. Okay, Samuel, I've got you covered. Here, here's what we're going to do. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for, for me him who I am, whom I declare to you. Now, it looks as if on the surface that God is giving Samuel something to say that's untruthful. He's coming to anoint the king. But God says, no, you go and just say that I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, that's not a lie. In order to anoint the king, you've got to make a sacrifice before God first. So God simply said, tell him exactly what you're going to do. You're coming to make sacrifice to God. You don't need to tell him anything else. And I'll show you what you shall do. By the way, I don't think Jesse or his seven sons really understood what exactly Samuel was anointing for. They knew it was something. had to be pretty significant for the prophet of God to come, but they didn't know for sure. And so, and he says in verse 3, Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Israel's next king would be found among the sons of Jesse. 
Jesse, by the way, was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? That's in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17 and verse 22. The first king of Israel was anointed to the people. Who was that? Saul. Anointed to the people. It was, it was, uh, he was the people's king. The people's choice. The kind of king the people wanted. But the people's choice failed. And so he was disqualified. In fact, he disqualified himself by not obeying God. Now, the Lord said, I will choose a king not for the people, for me. God is revealing his choice for king to Israel. This is going to be different than the last go-around. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. I love that Samuel obeyed the Lord. Oh, if we would just do what the Lord tells us to do. You say, well, I really don't hear his voice. I don't know what he's saying. I've never heard his voice either. Audibly, I've never heard him. I have had a sense in my spirit as I study the Word of God. God goes, that's it. That's the promise I want you to rest in right now. I have sensed in my spirit when the Lord has given me a peace over something that that's the right choice. Or when I'm, dis when I'm not at peace, it's the Lord's probably saying, uh, you shouldn't be at peace right now because that's not what I had for you. How many of you have ever been there? And so, so here Samuel is. He heard from the Lord audibly, maybe. Who knows? But whatever he heard, I mean, we know that Samuel, when he was a little boy, he audibly heard the Lord. And so maybe God still talks to him like that. I don't know. But the fact is, he was obedient to God. He did what the Lord told him to do. In verse 4, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? <laughs> I love that. They're scared to death when Samuel, the prophet of God, shows up in town. You say, why? Why would they be scared? Well, did you forget what we just studied prior, where Saul did not wipe out the Amalekites, as God told him? He kept King Agag alive, and Samuel said, you've disobeyed the Lord in this, and God's going to end your kingdom. Now bring Agag to me. King Agag shows up. He's all excited, thinking, man, death is behind me. There's nothing going to happen. And Samuel takes the sword and chops him in pieces. So now all of a sudden Samuel comes to your town. If you were an elder of Bethlehem, you'd be a little concerned too. In verse 5, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, so he just let him off the hook, you know. I come in peace. I'm coming to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So the idea was not that Jesse and his sons were just watch Samuel sacrifice this heifer. They would watch the sacrifice and then share in a large ceremonial meal, eating the meat that came from the sacrificed animal. Let me explain that to you, those of you who maybe you, you've heard about the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. But let me explain this to you. When an animal was being sacrificed as an atonement for sin, you didn't eat any of the animal, okay? It was all burned before the Lord. But when an animal was sacrificed as a peace offering before the Lord, then they would, uh, or a fellowship offering, then they would take the fat and burn it to the Lord, a sweet-smelling fragrance, 
and then they would take meat and they would take it home and they would eat it. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. And, and verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So, he sees all seven sons of, of uh, Jesse show up, and the very oldest, the first, walks up, Eliab, and he's like, oh my goodness, man, did God choose a good one. Wow, this kid's got it all together. He looks like a king. He's going to make a great king for Israel. And as he looks at him, he's just getting more excited by the second but the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Mm. Samuel made the mistake of judging Eliab based on his appearance. We do that all the time. I wonder how many people in life would say, Man, looking back, when I married that gal, or I married that guy, I paid way too much, time, too much attention to how they looked. Not enough about their character. I didn't, didn't focus in on that. And they second guess. We, we as parents do that. Our, our child grows up, they're going to get married, and oh, honey, you should marry him. Oh, that guy's wonderful. We don't know anything about his character. I'll tell you a funny story. So Lauren, I brought a book in. What happened to my book? Oh, there it is. I, uh, Lauren was uh, this was her first date. I tried to hold off till she was 21. It didn't work. So, so she was attending the School of the Arts down in West Palm, and she said, Dad, uh, a, a boy's coming to take me to dinner. And I told her what time she needed to be back, you know. And so the boy shows up, knocks on the door, and I let him in, and he looks like a decent guy. And he sits down, and I'm like, man, you know, come on. I'll tell you how bad I am. For her prom at King's Academy, um, the young man came to the door to take her, and I just put my shotgun over my arm and walked to the front door. Now, I knew that boy, and I knew his family. So it was, it was a joke, okay? I would never do that. <laughs> Come to the front door and just pump it one time. Can I help you? <laughs> no. So... This time, this boy comes to the door. He comes in. I said, hey, have a seat. He sits down. Lauren's still back in the back. And I started talking to him. And the more I talked to him, the more concerned I got. He's a good-looking kid. And he's well-dressed. And he's very respectful. But uh, his dad, they came from I forget where, but they, his dad's all about cars. And his dad, his business is he buys these special cars for all the celebrity. That's his business. He's a buyer for celebrity. And I'm just, I'm not impressed. I'm like, okay, you know. Lauren comes out, and I'm like, man, I'm just biting my tongue. And Remy's going, mm-mm, mm-mm, don't do it. So I said, okay, you folks have a nice little dinner, and honey, I'll see you. At, gave the time right in front of him. And... Then they turn to walk outside, and we kind of walk out the front door, and then I see this kid has pulled up in a convertible Jaguar. And I'm thinking, uh-uh, <laughs> this isn't happening. <laughs> it took everything in my being to let Lauren get in that car and go off with this kid. Oh, my goodness, that was a terrible night in my life. Years later... 
Lauren told me, Dad, that young man was one of the nicest and most respectful young men I ever went out on a date with. And she dated a lot of Christian boys. Appearance isn't everything. And yet that's what we do. We're not very far from Samuel, are we? We look at appearance. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Thank God for that. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, that's both a statement of fact, but also an exhortation to godly thinking. Here's the statement of fact. Even the best of men will look at the outward appearance. It's our natural inclination. And Samuel's no different, but we must understand that we can't read the secrets of another person's heart when we only look at the outer appearance. You've got to remember that. And, it, and then it's also an exhortation to godly thinking. God told Samuel, you can only see the outer appearance, but I can judge the heart that you can't see. So look to me. Don't look to them. Look to me. And don't be so quick to judge a person only by what you can see. See, we don't have to give in to our weakness to focus on the outer appearance. We can seek the heart of God for the person that He seeks. The best prayer that I ever prayed for my daughters was, Lord, you already have a young man picked out for each of them. I pray that you just bless that young man and his parents as he grows. May he grow not only in stature with man, but with God. May he develop and grow. That was my heart's prayer. Some of you did the same thing. You did it even better, better than I could ever do it with your kids. And, and that's the way it ought to be. Amen? We put it before the Lord. Let the Lord do the picking. Amen? Verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord uh, chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. These are your seven sons. God told Samuel that he, would not, uh, that he had not chosen any of the seven sons who attended the feast. It wasn't that these sons were bad men. These boys were probably all good boys. It's just they're not God's choice. And we would choose out of the seven, probably the first one, Eliab, like, like Samuel. That's not God's choice. As far as flesh is concerned, uh, we'd be, end up just like, like Samuel here. But then verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? See, here's what, Jesse, or what Samuel knew. God said that he was going to raise up the next king out of the house of Jesse. Well, you just walked seven boys in front of me, and God said no to all of them. That means either God's a liar, or you're hiding a boy somewhere. And, and are you, is this all you've got? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but, he, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. This shows the low regard that Jesse and his family had for their youngest son or brother, David. First, Jesse, his father, never mentions him by name. Notice that? No mention of David's name there. Second, he wasn't even invited to the sacrificial feast. Third, he was only called to come because someone outside the family, his brothers didn't invite him, his brothers didn't tell dad, dad, we, we, why aren't we bringing David here? Samuel inquired. Samuel insisted. Somebody outside the family had to get the boy to the table. 
Now, when we consider that David was the youngest of eight sons, we shouldn't be too surprised at the low regard that his family had for him because the youngest is usually looked down upon the most, okay? It wasn't because David's character or conduct was unworthy. It was more likely that he simply was the youngest. God often chooses, though, unlikely candidates, doesn't he? The ones that we don't think much of, we're not looking... I can tell you that was the case for me growing up. Um, I wasn't much to look at, and I hardly ever spoke. Now, you wouldn't know that, would you? But that's the truth. My mom and dad are sitting here. She can tell you. I was Charlie Farmer, one of the guys in the church, said, after I became a youth pastor, he said, Greg, I never even thought you had a tongue. I just didn't say much. I, always, I was always observing. I like to observe people and whatever. But I just, you, nobody would have chosen me, I can promise you, to be a pastor. Okay? And that's true for some of you. God goes after those that others have little regard for. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. See, the reality is, the reason God chooses unlikely people is because He wants His work to remain His. Somebody with big personality, big charisma, big skills and gifts, popularity, presence, woo factor... It's too easy for them to take the credit. So God finds the ones that couldn't possibly take the credit. What would what, they say about Jesus? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nobody would have chosen Jesus. Isaiah 700 years earlier prophesied and said, I'm telling you, there's nothing about him that would draw you to him. He had no, no features that were attractive. If Jesus walked in the room, not a single person here would go, whoo, who's that? He'd come in and sit down and not a person here would even pay attention. There was nothing about him that was attractive. That's God's choice. Amen. I'm thankful that God chooses those that are unlikely. As one theologian said, you may not be intellectual or well thought of in your family circle, you may be despised by others for your faith in Christ. Perhaps you only had a little share in the love of your parents, as David did. But remember that those who are rejected of men often become beloved of the Lord. Verse 11, latter part of the verse, he is keeping the sheep. What was he doing? David was called for this great anointing of God when he was out tending to sheep. He was faithful in the little things. God is not looking for people who are overachievers. That, that word ambition means a lot to people today. Man, are you ambitious? He's got to be ambitious. David was not ambitious. He was obedient. His dad said, son, your place is it with the sheep, which tells you something about the family. They were not wealthy people. Because most families would hire a servant to take care of the sheep. The family members did not take care of sheep. But in this family, they didn't have the money for the servant. So, David, you're it. And David was obedient, not ambitious. He just did what his earthly father told him to do. And his heavenly father took notice. By the way, keeping the sheep 
was a smelly job. David smelled like sheep. That means David would make a great pastor. Amen? And he was a pastor to Israel. I want to read for you a book where the elders are working on a project right now where we're going to add a page to our website where it's a bookstore. You have access to our, our own Vero Bible Fellowship bookstore. And uh, we're not, don't worry, we're not going out and buying tons of books to sell. It's, it's electronic, right? So we're simply tagging in with, with real bookstores. But these are the books that we recommend, books that we approve of. And I think that today one of the concerns I have as a shepherd, there's a lot of Christian books, but I'm telling you not a lot of them are theologically accurate. And I don't want our folks being led astray by some of that nonsense that's out there. So we're putting together a listing of books. And one of the books that will definitely be in that, on that list, one of the areas that we'll probably add is devotion, devotional, where you find a book that's good for devotional purposes. And I would qualify this one for that. Maybe some of you have read it. It's written by a man named Gene Edwards. Uh, I met Gene Edwards many years ago, spent a weekend with a group of pastors sitting with him. And he wrote this book. It's been used in co on college campuses. It's been turned into a, a, a drama. Uh, it's, uh, it's well thought of. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. And it's a study of brokenness. And it's the story of David, it's the story of Saul, and it's the story of Solomon. And it is a powerful, uh, just a powerful book that shares a lot with us. I'm going to read for you. The chapters are like two, one, it's a small read. Chapters are one page, two page. But let me read chapter one, maybe chapter two for you for a second. How are we doing on time? We're not going to get through the whole teaching out of chapter 16. I know that much. But anyway, listen to this. The youngest son of any family bears two distinctions. He is considered to be both spoiled and uninformed. Usually, little is expected of him. Inevitably, he displays fewer characteristics of leadership than the other children in the family. As a child, he never leads. He only follows, for he has no one younger on whom, he, on whom to practice leadership. So it is today. And so it was 3,000 years ago in a village called Bethlehem in a family of eight boys. The first seven, of Jesse worked, seven sons of Jesse worked near their father's farm. The youngest was sent on, uh, on treks uh, into the mountains to gaze the family's small flock of sheep. On those pastoral jaunts, this youngest son always carried two things, a sling and a small guitar-like instrument. Spare time for a sheep, sheep herder is abundant on rich mountain plateaus where sheep can graze for days in one sequestered meadow. But as time passed and days became weeks, the young man became very lonely. The feeling of friendliness uh, that always roamed inside him was magnified. He often cried. He also played his harp a great deal. He had a good voice, so he often sang. When these activities failed to confront him or comfort him, he gathered up a pile of stones and one by one swung them in at a distant tree with something akin to fury. When one rock pile was depleted, he would walk to the blister, blistered tree, reassemble his rocks, and designate another leafy enemy at yet a farther distance. 
He engaged in many solitary battles. This shepherd singer-slinger also, uh, also loved his Lord. At night when all the sheep lay sh uh, sleeping and he sat staring at the dying fire, he would strum upon his harp and break into quiet song. He sang the ancient hymns of his forefathers' faith. While he sang, he wept. And while weeping, he often broke out in abandoned praise until mountains and distant places lifted up his praise and tears and passed them on to a higher mountain until they eventually reached the ears of God. When the young shepherd did not praise and when he did not cry, he tended to each and every sheep and lamb. When not occupied with his flock, he swung his companionable sling and swung it again and again until he could tell every rock precisely where to go. Once while singing his lungs out to God, angels, uh, sheep, and passing clouds, he spied a living enemy, a huge bear. He lunged forward, both found themselves, uh, he lunged forward, both found themselves moving furiously toward the same small object, a lamb feeding at a table of rich green uh, pasture. Youth and bear stopped halfway and whirled to face one another. Even as he instinctively reached into his pocket for a stone, the young man realized, why? I'm not afraid. Meanwhile, brown lightning on mighty fury legs charged at the shepherd with foaming madness. Impelled by the strength of youth, the young man married rock to leather and soon a brook-smooth pebble whined through the air to meet that charge. A few moments later, the man, not quite so young as a moment before, picked up the little lamb and said, I am your shepherd and God is mine. And so long into the night he wove the day's saga into a song. He hurled that hymn to the skies again and again until he had taught the melody and words to every angel that had ears. They in turn became custodians of this wondrous song and passed it on as healing balm to broken-hearted men and women in every age to come. That's chapter one. Good stuff, isn't it? Shall I read one more chapter for you? Okay. We'll probably end up reading the whole book before we get through 1 Samuel. A figure in the distance was running toward him. It grew and became his brother. Run, cried the brother. Run with all your strength. I'll watch the flock. Why? An old man, a sage, he wants to meet all eight of the sons of Jesse, and he has seen all but you. But why? Run. So David ran. He stopped long enough to get his breath, then uh, sweat pouring down his sunburned cheeks, his red face ma matching his red curly hair. He walked into his father's house, his eyes recording everything in sight. The youngest son of Jesse stood there, tall and strong, but more in the eyes of the curious old gentleman than to anyone else in the room. Kith and kin cannot always tell when a man is grown, even when looking straight at him. The elderly man saw, and something more he, more he saw, uh, in a way he himself did not understand, the old man knew what God knew. God had taken a house-to-house -house survey of the whole kingdom in search of someone very special. As a result of the survey, the Lord God Almighty found 
that the, this leather-lunged troubadour loved his Lord with a pure heart than a purer heart than anyone else on all the sacred soil of Israel. Kneel, said the uh, bearded one with the long gray hair, almost regally for one who had never been in the, this, that particular position, David knelt and then felt oil pouring down on his head. Somewhere in one of those closets of his mind labeled childhood information, he found a thought. This is what men do to designate royalty. Samuel is making me a what? The Hebrew words were unmistakable. Even children knew them. Behold the Lord's anointed. Quite a day for that young man, wouldn't you say? Then do you find it strange that this remarkable, remarkable event led the young man to the throne, but uh, young man not to the throne, but to a decade of hellish agony and suffering? On that day, David was enrolled not in the lineage of royalty, but in the school of brokenness. Samuel went home. The sons of Jesse, save one, went back to war. And the youngest, not yet ripe for war, received a promotion in his father's home. From sheep herder to messenger boy, his new job was to run food and messages to his brothers on the front lines. He did this regularly. On one such visit to the battlefront, he killed another bear in exactly the same way as he had the first. This bear, however, was nine feet tall and bore the name Goliath. As a result of this unusual feat, young David found himself a folk hero. And eventually, he found himself in the palace of a mad king. And in circumstances that were as insane as the king, the young man was to learn many indispensable lessons. Chapter 2. That's what we're focusing, focusing on, isn't it? David is now being summoned. He's coming before uh, Samuel. And God is going to make this young man, just a boy, who's out there lost in obscurity. Nothing about him is important. Nothing about him special from the eyes of those who knew him. But God saw something in his heart. Aren't you glad that God is the one that does the choosing, not us? I love that. Psalm 78 captures this moment in our text. Verse 70, Psalm 78, 70 through verse 72. It speaks of the connection between David, and, David the king and David the shepherd. Listen to what it says. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, uh, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I love that. I love that. In verse 12 in our text, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The physical description of David tells us that he had a fair complexion. Uh, uh, probably a light complexion. He's, he's got red hair. And uh, so in that day, in that culture, that was pretty special. And he was seen as very handsome. He had bright eyes, which speak of his vitality and intelligence. And while David had a pleasant appearance, he didn't look like Saul, who looked like a leader. Saul looked like the king. 
David looked like a boy. He was a nice-looking boy. Oh, that's a nice-looking boy. That's what they would say when they saw David. They didn't see kingship. They didn't see a, a, a battle-tested warrior. They didn't see a leader over Israel. We don't know how old David was at that time. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus says that David was probably 10 years old. Uh, most scholars believe he was probably in the 15-year range. So he's probably somewhere between 10 and 15. He's just a kid. And God's called him to be the next king. We would say, the kid's only 15 years old. Let him grow up a little bit so we can figure out what his character is going to be like. God knew when he was born that he had the character God needed. God believes in us when nobody else does. God sees when nobody else can. God calls when He's ready, not when we think a person's ready. If only we would remember that and not try to force people to go through the hoops that we think are important. God calls people when He's ready. Verse 12, And the Lord said, Arise, anoint Him, for this is He. You know Samuel was glad to hear that finally. I've been looking at seven boys, and finally, Arise, this is He. Oh, thank you. Okay, Lord. By all outward appearances, David's seven brothers seemed to be better material for royalty. As unlikely as he was, David was the one. He was a shepherd. And there were a lot of shepherds in that day. He was nice looking. I'm sure there were a lot of nice looking young boys in that day. He was young. A lot of young men in that day. But he had something nobody else had. A quality that God was looking for. What is it? It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. What made David the one out of all the others was that he was a man after God's own heart. God's choice of David shows that we don't have to quit our jobs and enter into the full-time ministry to be people after God's own heart. We don't have to be famous or prominent to be people after God's own heart. We don't have to have some degree or a title or formal training to be God's choice. We don't need status, influence, power, the respect or approval of men, or carry great responsibilities to be people after God's own heart. Where did David get this heart? I think that the Psalms reveal where. It was in those quiet times with God on the side of a mountain. He knew what it was to sit before the Lord, to worship God. David was a worshiper. David loved God. He could spend hours worshiping the Lord, praying, sharing, writing songs, singing, writing poems. This was David. He was special because he had a heart after God. Alan Redpath, a great well-known British evangelist, pastor, and author said this. I love it. Quote, the public anointing of David was the outcome of what had taken place in private between David and God long before. Isn't that beautiful? And the spirit, Verse 13, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the real anointing happened, listen, the real anointing happened when the Holy Spirit came upon David. When, Saul, when Samuel poured the oil, that's not the real anointing. That's just the picture of the anointing that's coming. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. But the actual coming upon him happened when the Holy Spirit showed up. 
It's interesting that even after anointing David as the next king of Israel, Samuel didn't begin a let's enthrone David campaign. He didn't try to do something to make it happen. He went home. He simply obeyed God. Anoint the boy and go home. I'll do the win. I'll take care of everything else. You just do what I tell you to do and don't do anything else. Isn't it interesting how we try to help God out? You know, the Lord, you know, I, I really believe the Lord wants this ministry to start. And so here we are, man. We're going to force it to happen. We're going to make sure this ministry gets off the ground. So we pull our little matches out of our pocket and light the match trying to get the fire of God going. Ridiculous. Just obey God. Just obey God. I would have never chosen to plant or start, be part of a church plant. Never. I never, if you had asked me five years ago, hey, you think you'll ever plant a church? What? Seriously? I don't think so. But then God broke me. And after he broke me, I got a call from uh, an old friend from college who he has spent his life planting churches all over the United States. He was actually working with a church in Muncie, Indiana. They had planted, uh, they were planting uh, five church. Uh, yeah, five churches in seven years. That was their goal. And he called me up and he said, Greg, I'm sorry for what happened to you. We talked for a minute. He said, well, the reason I'm calling, I want to plant you. And I said, I'm not going to plant a church. I'm 60 years old. That's crazy talk. And he laughed. And he said, do you understand? The last three churches I've planted were pastors who were in their 60s. And they were the most successful churches we planted in a long time. And I said, well, that's wonderful, Robin. I ain't planting. <laughs> and he hounded me for the next two to three weeks. He paid my way to come up there and go to a church planting conference. And you can be part of this. And God's got great plans. And blah. he's just, you know, blowing smoke. And the whole time I'm going, Robin, I, I'm trying to heal. And whatever God has for me, I want to do it. But I don't know what God's doing. I know what you want to do, but I don't get a sense in my spirit that God's in that right now. And so we just went about trying to heal. Started meeting with just a small group of people to pray together because they were hurting. Let's, let's pray for them. Who knew what the Lord was going to do? I can tell you one thing. We didn't lay out some plan. There's never been a plan. As long as I pastor, I pray there's never a plan. We don't plan to grow. God gives the growth, right? He gives the increase. We just plan to be faithful with what He's called us to do and be. And let God do the rest. Amen? Now look, that might not excite a lot of pastors today who have this entrepreneurial spirit in them. But I'm not so sure that always what we as men want is what God wants. A lot of times we can be in some big church, big work, doing great things, and it's not God's will. Now, He'll bless it simply because people are getting saved. But He might have had something totally different for someone. That's why you see so many pastors leaving the ministry every single year. Did you know that every year 500 church... Or I'm sorry, every year. Every week... 500 churches close in America. A week. 
I'm not kidding you. Most of them are church plants. People who got so excited about doing something, they had a vision, they had a plan, they put it before God. God, this is going to be awesome. If you'll just bless what we're doing here, it's going to be awesome. We're going to build a daycare center, and then we're going to make money through the daycare each day. And then on weekends, we'll make it a worship center. And this, God, this is going to be an awesome plan. I need you to bless it. Boop, blops. Why? Because it was man's plan, not God's. So they leave the ministry. That happens all the time. But when you're faithful to God and you just do what God's called you to do, it's amazing. You get the front row seat to the work of God. And you never do touch. And you're not like, well, we didn't do that. But boy, did God not do something wonderful in our midst? That's what I always want to be part of. And I know that's what you want too. We just want to be part of what God's doing, right? Not try to create something. Well, that's David's life. That's Samuel. Samuel did what he was told to do. God didn't say, you know, okay, anoint him and then take him with you and train him. Anoint him, take him with you, and start hitting the little villages and announcing that this is going to be the next king. No, just anoint him and go home. But Lord, just do what I said. And as he obeyed God, boy, did God not lay it out and make the thing work. And you say, but wait a minute, God laid it out? Yeah, David came under Saul for 10 years and was beat up by Saul. That's part of God's plan. This idea that as a Christian, everything's going to be beautiful and easy and downhill is just a lie from the pit of hell. Part of our development, part of our spiritual growth, part of, of our strengthening of faith comes through painful times, does it not? Some of us <clears throat> have faced loss. It's painful. It's loneliness. A sense of aloneness can come in. We think, where's God in that? Many of us have faced COVID. Laid up. We've lost sleep over it. We job fell apart, or now I'm work. I can't get full time work, or whatever. It's amazing how life throws curveballs and God uses all of it and makes us stronger in the process. I'd rather go through life broken than any other way because when you're broken, you stop trying to order God around. You just listen really well and you're desperate. And guess what? Here's a wonderful characteristic of desperate people. They'll do whatever. God tells them to do. Prideful people pick and choose what they'll do for God. Desperate people just say, whatever. I'll do it, Lord. Whatever you want, you've got all of me. I love that. I hope and pray that I'll always be like that. I want to be like that. There's times where my flesh rises up and I'm not like that. But that's the desire of my heart. I want to be a desperate man for God. Amen? How about you? Well, let's close our time tonight. We'll come back and finish up next week, chapter 16. But tonight, let's let the Spirit of the living God speak into our hearts. I don't know what He's saying to you, but there's so much, so, there's so many nuggets in this passage. Let God personalize it for you now. Father, we, we just come before you and we ask you to reveal to us the things that you want to say to us. 
one of the things I've learned whenever I've slowed down enough in my life to just sit before you and listen, it seems like every single time the very first thing you say to me is how much you love me. Because I'm reminded of the, the key to the entire Bible. It's the gospel. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that who would, whoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, thank You for loving us. But Lord, it's not just about being loved. It's about loving You back. How do we know how to love You back unless we really slow down enough to let You tell us what You're up to? how you want to move in our lives, how you want to build our character, how you're going to use life's setbacks, life's victories to strengthen us, to build confidence, godly confidence in us. Oh, Lord, tonight, speak to us individually. It's a wonderful blessing to be part of a body, the corporate uh, move of God. But, Lord, we're also your children individually and you love us, and you know us, speak to us. Help us to be more like David. Help us to be less like Saul. We want to bring glory and honor to your name. That's why we exist here on this earth, to bring glory to you. So speak, Lord. We're here, we're listening, and we thank you for your love. Amen. Amen. Tomorrow morning, I challenge you to get up and just spend some time in the Psalms with the Lord. Let Him just pour over you. Let Him love you by His Word. Let Him reveal to you how much, how important you are, how valuable you are to Him. I'm telling you, it'll set you on a different course for the rest of the day. Amen. God bless you, church. Uh, feel free to fellowship with one another. And if you want to grab a snack before you head out, I know that they're, they're here for you. God bless you.